Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. This seems like everyone's here. Or, well, there's probably a couple people who aren't here, but we can go ahead and begin. <coughs> Does anyone have uh, anything that they would like to say or ask to begin with? Yeah. Well, that's the space between thoughts. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but there's also what you can sort of hold in mind to look for when your meditation is really, really sharp, and you feel like your mind is really fast, is to look for the gaps between moments of consciousness, regardless of what their content is. But um, most of the time you're not going to be able to see that. But it, it is something that we're going to start talking today about the, what's called the knowledge of arising and passing away. And in its very refined form in meditation. And as I said, it's usually yeah, more likely to be in a retreat situation where you focus on that, that closely. But uh, even between uh, much smaller events, you know, you become aware that there that, that there's a separate rising and passing away. Just as on the larger scale, you know, you have a great big old thought comes in, and then it's there, and then it's gone, and then the next one comes. But uh, it, it normally happens much too quickly, and your mind is. Uh, well, I say your mind is slow, but it's more like your mind grabs on to whatever just passed. And this is, you know, in terms of understanding what's going on in your mind, it's a very interesting thing to notice and point it out to you that um, every sensation, you know, like that, that sensation comes and goes. But if I do that again, I do it again, notice that after the actual sound is gone, there's a reverberation in your mind. Okay? And, you know, the same thing is true uh, if, you, if you have a thought. That even when the thought itself is gone, there's kind of an echo in the mind. And that, that stickiness of your mind is what makes it really hard to see. Uh, and, and so... I say your mind speeds up, but your also mind. Your mind gets less sticky. It's it's not grasping on to what comes. It's allowing. It's just allowing one thing after another to pass by without trying to grasp onto it. And that's also part of what contributes to a distinct experience of being able to see rising and passing away of phenomena. Okay. In the links of dependent origination, is that what's referred to as clinging? No, <clears throat> that's a very interesting question, though. I just answered that uh, for somebody else on, on the internet last night. Um, the word that gets translated into English as clinging or attachment is upadana. And clinging and attachment 
kind of don't really capture what this word means. In the links of dependent origination, just to tell you for those who might not be familiar with it, when, when an object of consciousness <coughs> arises, when there's contact and you become conscious of anything, doesn't matter whether it's a sensation or a thought or a memory, the contact is immediately followed by a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And in reaction to the feeling of a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the mind generates, a, the next reaction it generates is craving, desire, or aversion, depending obviously on pleasant, unpleasant qualities of it. Now the step that comes after craving in that series is the one that's usually translated as <coughs> clinging, Yupadana. What happens in this, like craving, desire and aversion is an urge that kind of comes up, an urge to action, a, a, a wanting or an aversion. And in itself it's rather formless. In the stage of clinging, what this is where the mind reifies, you know that word make, makes real, mind reifies the self and the idea that this object has an affective power on the, over the self, that this object can, that this object is the source of the pleasantness or the unpleasantness, right? And so it's called clinging because this reification is a clinging to the idea of self and a clinging to the idea that uh, objects and events are responsible for what you experience in terms of positive or negative. It's also attachment in the sense that uh, it involves naturally, you're reifying the object and there is an attachment to the object, especially if the object is pleasant, there's a, there's a grasping to the object because you want it, you want to hold on to that pleasantness. Uh, of course, the flip side of that is true too. It's an unpleasant object, there's an attachment to getting rid of it, <laughs> which grasping doesn't translate too well too. But so this word upadana that gets translated as clinging and grasping, you, it, it can be somewhat misleading because the key thing that's happening is your mind is giving form to the impulse that is craving. And it gives form to it by, first of all, the polarization of self and object, and secondly, by this relationship, assumed relationship, that this thing, if I have more of it, it's going to make me happier, or if I have less of it, it's going to take my suffering away. So that's a, that's a different, completely different kind of clinging. Okay, clinging I'm talking about is just uh, well. If the other kind of clinging, or if the kind of you know, there's this reverberation in the mind and the tendency to to hold on to one thing even after it's passed before you move your attention to the to the next thing. Uh, I know our perception might be much more jerky than it is. <laughs> it kind of smooths it on out. It's like 
Uh, it's like an after image in, you, in your eye that blends movements together. Yeah. Is it possible for our mindful awareness of, say, a simple sensory phenomenon that doesn't have much or maybe no affect, so no stickiness from mm -hmm. grasping and aversion, for instance, um, is it possible to be instantaneous with each phenomena, or is there something necessarily about our processor speed that will prevent it from ever being completely instantaneous with a detected phenomena arising? Okay, there, there, even when you are not grasping to something, there is sort of a functional thing that's happening in the mind that that helps maintain the connectedness between events. Um, but the idea of moments of consciousness, this is kind of a theory that was developed with Anadana. And it comes from the fact that, uh, I, I think it's, I, I believe it's rooted in the fact that in meditation you do get to a place where it seems like you're seeing one event after another rising and passing away, right? It's like individual moments of consciousness. Um, but then, when you ask the question, well, uh, how big is a moment of consciousness and can you actually be aware of a single moment of consciousness, there's pretty good reason to... The, the thing that, in actual meditation, you'll experience something that happens at a relatively coarse frequency of about you know, roughly one or two per second. And if uh, if the actual consciousness process were that coarse, it would be hard to ever escape the jerkiness of perception. You now you'll be meditating and in the course of an inhale it's like there's this pulsation that's one or two per second. Which, interestingly <coughs> enough, at first you think, oh, I'm aware of my heartbeat, but then if you notice your heartbeat, you'll know that, well, no, it's not the same rhythm. It's something different. It's actually <coughs> a mental phenomenon. But then, if you go further, that will dissolve into something else that's more like 8, 8 to 10, 12 times per second. It's much more rapid. You know, you say, oh, okay, is that moments of consciousness? Well, that's still pretty coarse. And then, as you, as you continue to refine your, uh, your perception, you know, your breath might just dissolve into a... a just a vibration. It's too fast to even. You've had that experience. It's too fast to even, but it's like a really rapid vibration. And what the interesting thing is is once your breath starts doing that, anywhere you direct it, it will start doing that. And that's actually a very powerful insight experience when that happens. I was going to bring that up later anyway. So you have to ask yourself, well, maybe that's moments of consciousness that are that fast. But uh, I, I, I think that were we able to keep looking closer and closer, we keep finding finer and finer <laughs> um, instances there. So whether or not whether or not there is some quantum of consciousness corresponding to moment of consciousness. And whether it's ever possible, I mean, you have to ask your, yourself the question: If you could become 
conscious of moments of consciousness, then that suggests that something else must be happening still more quickly. So, yeah. So, uh, to go back to a more real life, realistic situation is that uh, whatever's going on in the mind, it seems like information gets bundled. And uh, actually, uh, one of the great uh, Abhidhamma scholars, Ledi Sayadaw, has written a beautiful description of this bundling, that 17 moments of consciousness at a time are bundled together, and then groups of, groups of these are bundled together, and then groups of these larger ones, are, and he describes this over five kind of levels. This seems more like the kind of experience we have. And I was talking about the rise of the observing, the rising and passing away in daily life when your mind is really clear. I mean, those are really big chunks. You see a whole emotional reaction come up, and then the next uh, you know, thought associated with that, and so forth. And that's a pretty high-level bundling. But uh, obviously, when we meditate, we can go down to more and more to smaller levels. And I think that the theoretical side of what's really going on. I didn't have my recorder on before, but you have yours on. That's good. The, the theoretical side of what's really going on is not so important. What's important is that these experiences, no matter what scale you have them on, they make an impression on your mind. They, if you hold them in consciousness, the, the, all the different parts of your unconscious mind that have been holding on to the notion that reality, that consciousness is a discrete, or no, consciousness is a continuous process, you know, a, a flow, and that, uh, and that reality has, therefore, has the same continuity to it. The, your unconscious mind is challenged. It's, it's seeing reality being broken up into pieces. It's seeing things pass away. And when we get to the knowledge of dissolution, where you actually become aware of your attention to an object fading when the object fades, this is making a profound impression on, on your subconscious mind. It, it creates the insight problem. How do I reconcile this with my view of reality? And so what it does is it adjusts its view of reality that everything is impermanent. And that's how the insight comes about. So that's the most important thing, is that you have an experience that forces your mind to let go of the assumptions it's always held and try to look at things differently that allows your new experience to be incorporated. And uh, at least with the impermanence part of it, you know, there, there's usually a pretty clear conscious uh, recognition that that insight that, wow, this is impermanence. And especially when things start going really really, really quickly. It's like, oh, this is what impermanence is. This is what they were talking about. There's nothing but flow. There's nothing but flux. You know? And uh, consciousness is grabbing on the pieces of it. So, 
so that's that's a conscious experience that that you know uh, you you know you've had some kind of an insight when uh, when when your mind instead of just trying to avoid looking at this now accepts it like oh this is the way it really is and you also know that in your life when you stop you you when your mind stops seeing things in that way at a deep level then in your life you find that you're no longer uh, you're no longer upset by the fact that everything always changes you know and, and, and that's the real sign that you've had insight. True, if you're ever not sure whether you've had an insight or not, if it changes the way you see things and the way you experience life, you know you've had an insight, because that's what it does. It, it restructures your view of reality in a way that makes things go better, for the most part. <laughs> <coughs> So um, we're actually to the place of, of talking about the arising and passing away and the things that happen after that. But in the handout I gave you, one of the things that you come... Has everyone read the handout? And you remember when you got to the bottom of page 5 on part 3 and there's all of a sudden 18 great insights? And when you read that, you said, oh, wow, this is interesting. And then you started yourself, ooh. <laughs> um, I, I think these are really valuable in, uh, and will be useful to you. They're an attempt to describe in words the 18 great insights. They're not the same thing as the 18 insight knowledges. The insight knowledges are experiences that you have kind of sequentially in the development of insight. Um, there's uh, a lot of redundancy in these 18 great insights. But at, by the time you've reached this stage in uh, insight, you, you will have fully penetrated, that's uh, uh, the word they use, 1 through 3 and 11 through 13, which are actually the same three insights into uh, impermanence, uh, no-self, and uh, suffering, just stated in different ways. Um, and then as you go along, as you proceed from this point, you will, you will penetrate more deeply into the remaining insights. So it is a useful tool. I'm not going to dwell on it here, although I'm happy to ask, answer questions about it. I'm just pointing out to you that it's, it, it is at this point in the progress of insight that it's helpful to have a statement like this that tells you where you're going. Okay? Uh, and you can see as you go along that... Uh, It's not that at every step in the progress that all of a sudden we're encountering a whole new batch of insights. By the time we got here, you, you, you've, gotten, you've gotten the essence of, of uh, most of the insights. They need, to be, they need to be deepened, they need to be realized at a much more profound level. And at this point, the one that you... Uh, 
unless you're a person who came to the Dharma because of suffering, you're probably a person who at this point won't have much insight into suffering. Because right? that, that really comes uh, in, in the next stage. But you'll have, you'll have really, you'll have gotten a grasp on impermanence, you'll have some, some sense of no-self. And actually, to what degree you have a sense of no-self, what it means, no-self, no-separation at this point, is really important. And uh, it should be a priority for you to clearly, intellectually understand no-self. And to do your best to be alert for those inside experiences that will force your mind to, to integrate this understanding. Um, anything, you know, uh, one of the things that's really terrible about uh, popular Buddhism is all this stuff about reincarnation. Because if, you, if you're a person who has, uh, and I say popular, I probably should say lay Buddhism, the, um, or, or what's known technically by Buddhist scholars as small tradition Buddhism. The, lay, the beliefs of lay Buddhists in Buddhist country are called small tradition, and then what the monks know in the monastery, <laughs> that's the great tradition. And, and small tradition Buddhism talks a lot about past lives and future lives and reincarnation and everything like that. And the more you entertain those notions as as being a serious description of reality, the more strongly you will cling to uh, this idea of some kind of permanent abiding self, something separate from this mind and body that can go merrily along its way and find a new cadaver to inhabit. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that is what reincarnation means, right? Carnate, meat? Reunification. I am the separate spirit looking for a suitable chunk of meat. <laughs> Last one was a bit faulty. I'll look for a better one. This time. <laughs> but yeah, to the degree that you that anything causes you to cling more strongly to these notions, your mind's going to do what it has always done with anything that that um, <clears throat> that uh, would force it to readjust its its view, its belief system, is it's going to resist. And so, for you to, for you to have anything going on in your mind that creates resistance to the idea of no self, then your insights into impermanence and emptiness uh, are going to lag behind your uh, insight into uh, the fact that there is no separate self to be clung to and to be protected and to be looked after. And that creates a situation then, as you get along, as we get into the knowledge of dissolution, where you find you are the self-existent self living in a world that's impermanent and empty, 
and impermanence is frightening in the sense that the you know you that there's nothing to hold on to everything is everything is transitory um, all of your efforts are futile emptiness makes life meaningless everything you know if if there is no actual truth the way things really are then what's the point and and you can become overcome by desperation and frustration and misery and so forth. And so, and that's what will happen for sure. If you have strong insight into impermanence and emptiness, but not into no self, you will be in the position of being this poor, miserable self in an empty and impermanent world. And that's mm-hmm. not nice. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the Dukanyanas, the dark night of the soul, and so forth. Right. So, at this point, <coughs> it's uh, where we've been looking at these three when you've been <coughs> working on cultivating these three kinds of Insight. These are the three characteristics. These are the key insights. There's not really going to be any new, <coughs> any dramatically new insight after this. These are the insights that keep on deepening. But um, another way of describing this one, no self, is emptiness of self. <coughs> and and this is actually a point where the word emptiness starts to be a really useful term, because. something is empty of, of self-existence and I use God as an example of self-existence but our notion of our self or our soul is actually this this is this is a really good example of something that we would like to believe is self-existent this is reflected in the idea of free will free will says well I can do things that are not the result of causes and conditions. And that is part of the definition of something that's self-existent, is capable of. And of course, you know, that's a scary ideal. If I don't have free will, everything's deterministic. But that's not the alternative. The, the free will assumes that there is some self, but can either exercise free will or is somehow incapable of it because of determinism. If you drop the idea of self, then the question of free will is no longer anything to do with free will. It's just simple determinism, yay or nay. And uh, the wonderful thing about this point in the evolution of human knowledge is that we know that there is no there is no absolute determinism. There is no... It, it's It's not just that we can never know enough to predict what you're going to decide about something in the future, although that's true itself. We would have to know everything about everything for all time in order to make an accurate prediction. And the farther we are from the present, the more true that is. We can make a rough prediction now based on more limited information and we might be right a certain percentage of the time. <clears throat> but the further in the future we get, the, uh, the accuracy is going to decrease very rapidly 
<laughs> unless we have more information. And as we get very far in the future, the only way you can predict is to know absolutely everything about everything, which is impossible. But that's not the only reason that determinism is not a problem. <coughs> it's because <coughs> that we don't live in a Newtonian universe. We live in a quantum universe where things are determined probabilistically. There is no... It, not only can you not predict what's going to happen in the future, what is going to happen in the future is, is not determined except probabilistically. The chances are extremely high, 99.999999% probable that my head will still be on my shoulders in the next minute. <laughs> but there is some minute possibility that it will be over there. <laughs> and that's the way it is with everything. Nothing is absolutely determined in the kind of quantum universe we live in. So we, you know, you don't need to worry about free will issues. But free will is one of those, the, the idea of free will is one of those things that will help make you want to cling to a self. These, these are the kinds of issues that we're usually used to taking for granted. Why am I bothering doing this if uh, if things are deterministic? Well, you have to you have to believe that uh, there is some freedom, some latitude for change that you can make a difference in your in your own future. That everything's not absolutely determined, and fortunately, that's true. But you will cling to the notion of self as being this entity, which is self-existently real in the sense that hopefully it has some kind of free will. You don't need to do that. And it's very important that you don't do that. You may not understand then, well, how is it that... Um, you may not fully understand how things work if this is not a Newtonian deterministic universe and you are not self-existent soul with free will, how do things work? doesn't matter whether you understand the alternative. As long as you realize that thinking those kinds of thoughts is going to impair you in your progress of insight and it's going to put you through a difficult period. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. okay. <coughs> so. <coughs> anyway, so these the 18 insights are here in your handout to help you make use of them. See, I have this assumption. I'm Everybody reads here says, okay, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm on my way. Progress of insight. And this, you'll keep this around. You'll, you'll reference it whenever you get to the stages that... So the next, the next step, and this is this is uh, the next purification is purification by knowledge and vision of path and not path. And in terms of the knowledges, 
you've progressed from the knowledge by comprehension by groups, which is all about getting in touch with these, these three uh, uh, characteristics, the insights into these three characteristics. The quality of your meditation has improved greatly. You tend to be single-pointed. tends to be fairly easy to be single-pointed. Your mind is going quickly. You can begin to follow the arising and passing away. Um, as you do this, you may start experiencing strange sensations in your body. Itching, burning, coolness, warmth, and tickles, and itches, and feeling like the hand pushing down on the top of your head. Uh, you may find your body starting to jerk, that your fingers starting to twitch and tremble. Starting to, maybe your body starting to rock back and forth. You don't intend it to, you just hear your Meditating nicely away and your body starts rocking. Why is it doing that? Or going in little circles. Uh, you may start to see flashes in your eyes and uh, things like that. You may start to hear a humming or a ringing noise in your ears. What all of this is, is the, uh, the arising of meditative joy called piti. And in the beginning, there's nothing particularly joyful about it. It's all these different responses you have in your in, that you experience in your body as your mind is beginning to uh, enter into a state of joy before that actually happens. Um, <coughs> the way it progresses, you'll have one or two of these things at a time that will be there. And that's, that's called minor pity. And then um, it will, you'll start to have more of them occurring at the same time, and they'll be stronger, uh, and they'll come and go. And that's called momentary pity. And then instead of it comes and you have some, some twitches and some tingles or whatever it is in your particular case, <coughs> it's, it's different for everyone, different combination of all these things. But you'll, you'll progress from the momentary PT to where you have a lot of these sensations and maybe some joy and happiness as well. But it comes in a big wave and then it subsides and doesn't <coughs> quite go away and then it comes on really strong again. And that's called wave-like PT. If you have tactile sensations, you may have a sense of feeling like a uh, very pleasant tingling sensation just going down your body. If you experienced a lot of energy movements, what you may uh, experience is a sense of that the energy that's kind of not moved freely all of a sudden just goes right up your spine to the crown of your head and then showers down over your body as this beautifully pleasant sensation. Um, and, and that's sometimes described as showering PT. And then the next thing that happens is you still have the weird sensations and the movements, but the joy itself predominates. There's this energy, this enthusiasm, this happiness, this really good, good, you know, exciting, pleasant feeling. Uh, and that's called uplifting PD. And the energy can sometimes be so strong that you find yourself bouncing right off the cushion, you know, sitting there and, and you 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I've seen people leave the cushion several inches. <laughs> uh, and it's just, you know, it's just a sudden release of energy that makes them do that. And then, in the final stage, then, the PT matures, and almost all of the sensations, the energy, and everything like that disappears. Your body feels really, really pleasant, really still, feels so nice that you don't even want to move, and you're, you're definitely in a state of joy and happiness. So, someone in the, this arising and passing away, knowledge of arising and passing away state, will be experiencing the arising of PT. Because ultimately, it begins out in a disturbing way, begins in a disturbing way, but it ends up as a, as a very powerfully pleasant and enjoyable state of mind. While this has been going on, we've been trying to stay focused on the, the breath and to be mindful of whatever thoughts happen to come. Um, They've been experiencing the rising and passing away phenomena really clearly. They tend to be very proud of uh, the quality of the meditation. Uh, they tend to be really confident of the insights. Oh yes, I'm seeing impermanence. Oh yeah, this is all really clear. Things like that. <coughs> and so this can be, it can actually be a distraction from the continued process of insight. Uh, and so these have, in, in the Vasudhi Maga that I took this from, and in the people that teach insight based on the Vasudhi Maga, they refer to these as the defilements of insight or the distractions from insight. The light you see, the illumination, uh, the understanding, or it's like, oh, yeah, I'm really getting this insight stuff, influence, the joy, uh, the tranquility, the pleasure in the body, uh, a lot of faith and confidence, energy, concentration's really good, mindful awareness is good, uh, the sense of a lot of equanimity. Uh, the only one that's important here as in terms of being a problem is number 10, attachment. You get attached to the other nine. The attachment, in its strongest form, the attachment uh, takes the form of, this must be it, I'm enlightened now. <coughs> I've achieved the goal. Remember, this is what this is called, is called the uh, purification by knowledge of, uh, knowledge and vision of path and not path. Learning the difference between where you're really going and, and uh, uh, where you think you are, if you should in, be in that extreme state. Like, now, if you're somebody that's been doing samatha practice, all of these things are really familiar to you. You knew they were coming, you experienced them before, you know that what they lead to is physical pliancy, joy, tranquility, equanimity, fully developed samatha. You know that they're just they're just part of the process, and you're much less likely to experience any attachment to them. It's the people that haven't had that knowledge in previous experience who are most likely to get attached. Uh, and uh, even even if you don't go so far 
as to think, well, this is it, I must be enlightened now because I feel so good and happy. Um, it's nice, you want to indulge in this. Uh, you, you, you know, so there's a tendency to want to hold on to it. So it's when you reach the point that, no, that you realize, no, okay, this is nice, it's only due to causes and conditions. I only got here because I've done a lot of meditation. If I stop meditation, all this good stuff goes away. Um, then it becomes really clear that, okay, I haven't reached the end of the path. There's a long way to go, and the longer I spend uh, indulging myself and enjoying this, then, then uh, the longer it's going to take me to reach the true end of the path. And so, with that realization, you will have had insight into uh, uh, what is the path and what is not the path, and you're ready to persevere with your practice. Any questions about this? This is a very interesting, this, this, this marks a midpoint, a really important transition point. Up until this point, you've been cultivating concentration and mindfulness, samatha. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you're finding yourself with that maturing. You've been cultivating the insights, the kind of insight that begins with intellectual understanding and then gets confirmed through, um, through direct experience. <coughs> and so this really is a, an important transition. As a matter of fact, when you got to this point, the, this is traditionally referred to as the true beginning of insight. Because you now have the mental skills necessary, uh, you've kind of cleared the decks of the obstacles in your way, and you're ready to really go for it. Yeah? Well, you, you speak of it as being the progressive stages of insight, but especially with these first stages, is, I mean, they don't all ne necessarily happen at once to an individual, do they, or do they? I mean, is it step one, step two, step three, or I mean, it, it seems like I have a better concept of some of these than I do others, and uh, mm -hmm. not necessarily the first one. See, yes. Do you understand my question? Yes, I do. That, that is, does it always happen step one, step two, step three? And no, especially in this part. That's us. Awesome. Yeah, when we get past this point, it pretty much does, it, it can't really happen in, in any other way. Up to this part, point, it happens more or less this way, but not precisely so. This is a description that would precisely fit somebody uh, in a monastic environment. They, the first thing they do is they study the basic Buddhist doctrines of, you know, Nama and Rupa and the five aggregates and dependent origination and everything like that. And then in their meditation, they start saying that, oh yeah, this is true. And so, if you're not, if you're not in that environment and following a more or less regimented course of study and practice, then yeah, it's going to be more variable. But I think you're saying that you look at this and you see, well, this, I, I know I've had some of these insights, but there's others that uh, I haven't. Maybe I didn't even know I was supposed to. Exactly. Yeah, and so where this is useful is is it allows you now to cultivate those other insights that, that you hadn't before and you hadn't been aware of. And so 
that situation, I think, would probably be most typical of uh, most lay practitioners like yourselves, and probably of most Westerners. And another thing about this is that our educational backgrounds make some of these e insights much easier than others. As a matter of fact, some of these insights we may have already gained through other activities in our life that, that before we ever sat down to meditate. Okay. I think I'm uh, lost. I'm not sure what you're describing. I didn't quite hear the name. Um, you, you're talking about a, a, a position on the 18 knowledges, I think. Yeah, I'm talking about purification by knowledge and vision of path and not path. <coughs> and that corresponds to uh, knowledge of rise and fall. Or as... Uh, some <coughs> modern writers about the progress of insight like to call it is the A and P experience. <laughs> you said stage seven, did you mean of samatha? A stage seven of samatha. Yeah. Okay, so we've got stage seven of samatha and then a stage of insight and then say we go through the knowledge of insight. So That's right. We have three different things going on. Well we have we have the ten stages of samatha. Okay, we have the eighteen knowledges of insight, which are subdivided into seven purifications. The other thing are the eighteen great insights, which is that's something different. The eighteen great insights there's nothing sequential about them. As a matter of fact, when you read them, they'll seem out of order to you. Oh, okay. So the eighteen great insights are not in order. No, they're not in. They're. So we're just talking corresponding. And, and let me explain that a little bit. Okay. A person could do a samatha practice and not worry about insight at all. Okay? And they would move right along and what we are just what we just described in terms of the progress of insight corresponds to what they would be experiencing at stage seven and then stage eight in in the stages of samatha. So somebody who never did any samatha practice at all and probably even didn't even know that they were acquiring this kind of mastery. Uh, you know, they, uh, they teach what's called dry insight, where they tell people, Dad, don't worry about concentration, you just label, label, label. Label everything that comes in your mind. The truth is that if you do that, by the time you've achieved any success, you've actually developed Samatha. And by the time you're able to experience the A and P, the arising and passing away, by the time you get to the A and P, you have to have, at a very minimum, stage six Samatha, a more likely stage seven. And when you get to the, uh, when you get to these distractions from insight, you'll actually be uh, in, in stage eight territory. So, you sometimes hear and may be led to believe that samatha and vipassana, vipassana and insight are two different things, but they're not. If you practice vipassana, you're going to develop samatha. If you practice samatha, you have, as I hope to have showed you yesterday, you have, you're having insight experiences all the time. It's just a question of recognizing. So, um, 
the two were not different. The Buddha's teaching on this in the Yuganada Sutra was some people practice just some stuff they do, they better go find somebody who knows about insight. Somebody might practice just insight. If they do, they're not going to make much progress, so they go find somebody who knows something about samatha. And then he said, but the third way to do it is to practice both at once. Samatha and uh, vipassana yoked together, which is what yuga means. Yuga is yoked, yoked together. The name of that sutra in English is yoked together. Samatha and vipassana yoked together. So these are the three ways that you can approach the path to enlightenment. Emphasis on samatha at the beginning, or right from the beginning, or emphasis on insight right from the beginning. But the two have to come together. They're also described as being like the two wings of a bird. You can't fly on one wing. And um, it's really useful to know. I have to say that I have a very hard time to understand that the numbers here from 1 till 9 are distractions. If I would reach in my lifetime, those yeah. nine points exactly. would be out of my mind with happiness to have kindness on That's right. I mean, with the knowledge, they can change all the time. They're only distractions. <coughs> There are only distractions if you get attached to them. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. not exactly. pretend. <laughs> no, they're good. As a matter of fact, you need those things. You are not going to be able to go any further in the progress of insight if you don't have concentration and mindful awareness uh, and energy and equanimity and faith and confidence and all of these other things. Okay, good. So, so, so they're all good. The only one that's a problem is yeah. number 10. Okay, I see. And number 10 <laughs> makes the others a problem. <laughs> so, you overcome number 10, and you can hold on to the other nine. Yeah? Equanimity, uh, what is the definition there? How is that used? Equanimity is, uh, how it's used in this context is non, non-reactivity to the pleasant and the unpleasant. To the degree that you react to what's pleasant with, uh, with desire and grasping, or the degree that you react to what's Unpleasant through through uh, aversion, you don't have equanimity. Uh, now, the equanimity referred to here isn't perfect equanimity. It's it's a whole lot more equanimity than you're used to having. <laughs> it doesn't mean that there's absolutely no no create no reactivity in the form of craving. It just means that there's much much less. You're much more willing to let both pleasant and unpleasant things go by. With equanimity, or just in general because of different experiences, does one's experience of dependent origination change? So like the path, the map that's laid out by the Buddha, it seems to yeah. imply that attachment aversion are there. If Actually, you have strong equanimity, do those then go away at certain points and certain lengths? Uh, absolutely. It, as your equanimity becomes stronger, you actually can work with the links of dependent origination. As a meditation practice, you can meditate on, and what you do is you you just, you clear your mind and then you wait for the next thought or sensation or whatever that comes up, and you practice watching it and then watching the feeling of pleasant and pleasant and neutral that follows. And when you get really good at that, then you start watching the, the craving that arises, so that you can see the sequence that there is, uh, there is a, a, a stimulus, there's a feeling, and there's craving, and you can see it very clearly. 
when you can do that very well, then you can actually <coughs> follow the, uh, the impulse of craving into the reification that is grasping. And that can become a meditation practice, a very powerful meditation practice. Equanimity weakens craving enough to allow you to observe these events. Uh, although any of you could observe the feeling that arises in response to a sensation, for example, and that's a good practice to do. But what you'll find is past the feeling, the, the craving blends into the clinging so quickly, and then uh, this, the next thought that's triggered by the sensation comes. And so you might be able to perceive the feeling in response to that next thought comes, but then the, then the, the craving, clinging, becoming happens so quickly that you're into the next event. So as your equanimity grows stronger, now you can start to see more and more steps of dependent origination. And it creates kind of a feedback thing, because the more clearly you see them, then just the act of, of observing them uh, weakens them, so that now you can see them even more clearly. Yeah. So if you achieve a stage of nicely, smoothly, a nice smooth equanimity, mm -hmm. and it goes away, and if you search for it, then you then you're stuck in attachment. Well, if you uh, if it comes, it's fine. If you search, it, it's really the combination of things because you're you're not going to have equanimity by itself. It's going to be accompanied by the, the joy and the pleasure and, and these other things. And the equanimity is relative. As a matter of fact, if you had complete equanimity, there would be no attachment. <laughs> but you don't. You only have relative equanimity. And the problem is that you become attached to the whole cluster. These things all come together. And your attachment takes the form that when you sit down to meditate, this is what you want and you want to get back to this. And it's more important than, um, than, well basically the solution to the problem is you just go back to the practice and you let all these things be there. You just let them be there, but your interest is to make sure that your awareness is strong and the focus of attention is stable and to try to just penetrate more and more deeply. And what will happen if you do that, you will have at this stage of the arising and passing away, the A and P, you will have the, those kinds of experiences like we talked about where first you see this kind of a jerkiness in your perception and then it goes to a finer level. And it might even, doesn't, doesn't always with everybody, but sometimes it will dissolve into this very fine vibration. And this is a very powerful experience of impermanence extremely powerful insight experience. And it's one to be, when it happens, you just want to keep continuing it and you don't want to stop and figure it out. It's not about thinking about this. You just want to let it, let it keep unfolding. You just used the word dissolves into what? A very rapid vibration. Vibration. Now, if that happens, it's not just an it's just not a, a, an uh, insight experience that leads to, uh, to deeper understanding of impermanence. If that happens, it becomes an insight experience 
that leads to understanding emptiness. Because what happens is everything dissolves into this fine vibration and everything totally loses its meaning. You, and you have a feeling like in the pit of your stomach when you unexpectedly fall off of something steep. It's like, oh, this is, this is bad. And your mind <laughs> jumps back to another perspective where, oh, okay, it makes sense again. Oh, yeah, there's sensations I recognize. It's the comfort level. So what what you have what you are experiencing when that happens is of course that this raw data coming into your mind the meaning isn't inherent in it the mind puts the meaning in it the mind projects the meaning onto it and that's really the essence of emptiness so if you I mean you, your mind leaps back and everything becomes comfortable and okay again but Instead of saying, that's a relief, let's go somewhere else. If you say, let's do that again, and again, and again. What's coming clear at an unconscious level in your mind is exactly this fact. But wow, all this meaning and sensibility that I see in my world is coming from me. I'm putting it there. It's not there by itself. You're catching the mind <coughs> in the act of projecting reality onto the raw stuff of experience. That's a very powerful insight experience. So, in this A and P, you can have insight experiences that lead you to deep understanding of permanence, insight experiences that lead you to a deep understanding of emptiness. <coughs> and that is far more important than sitting there enjoying how good this feels. <laughs> and what a great meditator I am, and how sharp my mind is, and all these other things. Although they're not completely independent of each other, because if you enjoy how sharp your mind is, you're probably going to get to one of those places anyway. Um, the danger, the problematic nature of these distractions tends to be overstated, but it still needs to be known, and you still need to get past it. Along those lines, I just heard it. maybe it's more of a somatic thing than an insight thing, because it seems like an insight thing, no matter what arises you just continue to try to penetrate it and see exactly. what it is, what it really is. If it's equanimity, like what are the sensations, exactly. yeah. what's rising? On the Samata side, though, with things like, jo or especially, I heard this one, um, some teachers just recently talking about, and they're, they're coming from like a deep jhana tradition. <laughs> and, they, and they kind of said with the whole light jhana thing, the problem is if you take any of these as meditation objects, mm -hmm. right, to enter into light jhana or something like that, then that ends up developing more attachment to these kinds of things. Because then you do sit down and purposely try to cultivate these things and focus on these things. I, just, I don't know if you had a few thoughts on well, that. Well, I, I, what they're saying is, yeah, it does create an attachment. The attachment goes away. When you get good, I mean, haven't you done this? When you get good at entering these jhanas, you reach a point where you're just tired of it. You want something. You want something. You, you know this more. You know this better. And been there, done that. I'm ready to move on. Mm -hmm. So, I, whereas it's true, it creates attachment. But... Uh, that problem takes care of itself. At the same time, what it's doing is it's really entering any kind of jhana really stabilizes and clarifies the mind. And so it's worth doing for its own sake. And, um, and there can be no better validation than the fact that if you look at how the Buddha taught meditation in the sutras, he taught jhana over and over again, everywhere. 90% of the references to meditation are references to jhana. 
I'm getting a little confused about the difference between, I mean, I see how you can get insight into how your perceptions of objects aren't real. Mm -hmm. and, and the, the perceptions are impermanent. But that doesn't mean what you're perceiving is in any way impermanent. I mean, I, I don't get No, and you see, that's... What's important is you're realizing that the only things that you know are impermanent. Okay? So, I mean... But that's not we, we could get into a philosophical discussion and a debate, and believe me, many people have, is ultimate reality, <coughs> ultimate reality must be self-existent, right? And, and just people will argue that it's not. I mean, seems to me logically it has to be, but <laughs> ultimate reality, the totality of everything, it seems like it must be, but, but the thing is that those are just philosophical discussions. Since we can't know anything else. What's important, yeah, what's important is what you what you can know, what you do know, and how you know it. And that's what we're really interested in um, One of the things that you can know, and that's important to know, is that even though, even though the objects that you perceive may not be either permanent or uh, even remotely the way you perceive them to be, it's very important to realize there must be something that's giving rise to that perception, though. And that was the problem we were talking about yesterday, when people start internalizing all of this and they get to, well, nothing exists and everything comes from the mind. And that's, that's not consistent with your, with your direct experience and with your insight practice. Because if you did the first part of your insight practice properly, you know that everything that your mind, that your mind is doing, everything that the mind that you have any knowledge about is doing, has been has originated at some time in some form through sensation, and that sensation is something that you and your mind have no direct control over. And so, if you if you have realized that insight on this path, then you're not going to start making mistakes. And the important thing is, no, you can't really know what's on the other side of sensation. And you can't really make informed statements about, uh, well, it's permanent or it's not permanent, things like that. And you don't have to, because the important thing is to know, that, is to know the reality. And the reality is that you simply can't know those things. Okay, is that helpful? It's not as simple. Right. Yeah, it's not as simple. We we'd like to know, we'd like our insight to inform us about the ultimate. So I mean, all the, everything, everything in the list is basically about our mind. It's not really about anything else, right? Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, that's that's what we are. What we're gaining insight into is our mind, our own nature, and the reality that we live in. And the reality that we live in... Um, it's a mediated reality. It's a mediated reality. And when we get to the end of this path, there are things that we can know about the larger reality. 
but we can never know it in the way that we would like to. Can I ask a question about yes. when, when you dissolve into the fine vibration, what, is there a feeling of, um, I feel like on the one hand I feel like I've been knocked out, mm -hmm. on the other hand I feel a sense of familiarity, like I've yeah. been there always or been there before, but I forget, mm -hmm. or I've forgotten, then all of a sudden I'm somewhere very familiar, but there's no name for it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, because, because it's where you have always been, right? <laughs> you know, and... Um, and the thing is, in all of these things, uh, whether or not you feel it the way you do in that particular one, there's some part of your mind that's always known all of these things. But it learned early on to compartmentalize that knowledge because... It <laughs> yeah, okay. So. Okay, well... Um, this has been a fun discussion. <laughs> and and uh, what I, I just say a little more before we go on to the purification by uh, knowledge and vision of the way and the dupanyanas and so forth. <coughs> um, I said this before, but it's very important when you have when you have an inside experience that actually gives you an insight, you want to hold on to that. You want to repeat that experience, repeat it over and over again, and then the insight, the understanding that comes from it, you want to apply that understanding in as many different ways as to as many different things as you can. It's very important. Because that, uh, right through to the end of this process, it is very important. Because there is... Your unconscious mind consists of all these separate processes and it is through consciousness that they communicate and therefore it's by holding inside experiences and insights in consciousness that the actual spread of this information laterally and vertically, breadth and depth, occurs. And so if you want everybody on your committee to know what we're doing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's very important to engage with these experiences and to apply these insights. Every time when you, when you have, say you've had the experience of seeing how your mind is projecting meaning on the raw data of the world, then you get up and you're walking down the street, well of course things aren't dissolving into raw data anymore, but you know, you can still be thinking, Oh well, I'm I'm seeing a tree, but I'm not really seeing a tree. My mind is making a tree out of the information coming in through my eyes. And if that insight is strong still in your mind when you're doing this, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. And it's true of the car too. And it's true of the sound of the bird out here, and, and, and these other things like that. And you can have a whole new powerful insight experience standing there on the sidewalk, just realizing that oh wow, my mind is making this whole world up right now. And that's the kind of thing you want to do with it. Yes? I'm not sure about whether this is um, 
a continuation of that or 180 degrees from that. But some people have a tradition of intentionally uh, creeping onto that experience. You look at a tree or you see the flight of birds and, and they make augury. Oh, the birds are flying left. That has a deeper meaning. And, and um, they, they, they train themselves exquisitely to, to oh, the, sun, the, the sun coming through the spider web means something. And, and there's, a, there's a very conscious effort to, to, to study a, a cultural system for that. What is that? Okay, well, okay. First of all, in many cases, it's just not being satisfied with projecting the fact that it's a flock of birds, but you want to project even more on it. That becomes an art. But the other thing, where the, but but the other thing is that we're constructing a reality out of our experience, and we conceive it as operating in a particular way. Okay, but everything is interconnected. And there are relationships that aren't a part of our model of reality. And there's some people, not a whole lot, but there are some people that are able to see relationships between things in a way that the rest of us don't. And for those people, it's not just a projection, it's actually a projection that's useful, there's a certain degree of accuracy. What they're not—they're not, they're not ju just projecting meaning. They're actually finding meaning in the same way that the rest of us find meaning by understanding that water flows downhill and and where the smoke is fire and things like that. They are also finding meaning. They're kind of finding a kind of meaning though that we've blinded ourselves to. So sometimes, and, and that's when they're really cultivating it, and that can become very useful. I mean, that's what shamans do. Yes, that's kind of where I was going. Right. Um, yeah, uh, shamans and some people that seem to have uh, abilities, psychic abilities, they can't explain how they do it, but they can tap into a kind of meaning that isn't available to the rest of them. Well, that gets entirely into the mnemonic hook by which we, you, you have gone on about how we only know what our senses it ultimately begins at the senses, oh, yeah. and and you you even when you know stuff that you got by some abstraction, you say I heard, I saw. Mm -hmm. You 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 put that on there. Mm -hmm. So this suggests that there's some other input that we attach the. To, to the five senses I heard, I well, saw, it, with it, the clairaudience or clairvoyance or whatever, okay. that's all clear. With, without denying some other input, no, it doesn't suggest that. Oh. Somebody who, they see the same thing you do, they see the birds flying this way and the rain slanting that way, or whatever it is, but they're seeing a meaning in it that you don't because they're perceiving the relationship with the, between these things that you don't. You, everything that allows you to function in the world is because you see relationships between your sensory experience that work. And some people see different relationships and they also work for them. 
But let me point out, I said, the first thing I said, a lot of this is just projecting extra meaning, and it's extra meaning that's not really there. Right. There are people fascinated by the idea of this, and they like to do this, like a game they play. I put them in a different category than those who are actually, what they do produces functionally significant results, like, like shamans. We'd all pretend to be shamans. We could learn the lingo and we could talk like it and tell each other all the things that we see here that our spirit guides have told us. Right? Yeah. But there's some people that come up with something that's really valuable and useful. And then there's a third category. We all have this tendency, right? Is anybody in the room that doesn't read? Well, I shouldn't look at you. Anybody in the room that <laughs> doesn't read meaning into things, see omens? You know, uh, have their own little private superstitions. Mm -hmm. Everybody does. And in a sense, at some level, I would say that everybody really knows that there, there are a lot. There is a lot of information coming in that they're not processing and that they could know. Where it gets out of hand, though, is when a person starts seeing significant messages in every license plate of every car that goes by and the fact that the uh, uh, lampshade is tilted at a certain angle and therefore they know that what they really need to do is to take all the money in their bank and flush it down the toilet <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> they all reference him and there, it leads to odd behaviors and schizophrenic. There's a, there's a pivot on this that, that I'm, I'm going to seize here. A little while back, you had talked about reincarnation and small tradition Buddhism. And um, you had argued that if you start discussing past lives, the more you entertain these notions, the stronger they get. And I, I wanted to leap in and say, but wait a minute, you could argue that about these that we are here studying today as well, the, the longer we entertain this this idea of no self, this idea of impermanence. The longer we entertain those, the clearer they get too. That's right. So, so I can't quite tell whether you were damning or praising that tendency in our minds. The tendency to 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 the longer you look at it, the, the mm -hmm. I'll I'll see it when I believe it. That. The tendency that if you look at it, you reinforce it. I can't tell. All of a sudden, you were you were well, talking look about. Look at it. Uh, what I was talking about, the danger is to become attached to notions of reincarnation. Okay. Okay. That's not just looking at it. Okay. That's becoming attached to it, indulging in it, engaging in it. Uh, when when your thoughts throughout the course of the day are flavored by, oh, well, I'd better do this because, uh, because it'll make good karma for my next reincarnation. Oh, I'd better not do this because it'll make bad karma for my next reincarnation. If you, if you get to a place where you're doing that consistently, you are really, you know, you're, you're pouring the concrete into the mold. It's going to be really hard to break that idea. So when we are motivated to do X or Y, how do we view this as a motive we do in the present moment for, for... That's why it's important to understand what karma really is. And karma is not the things you do and the things that happen to you as a result. Right. 
The karma is the intentions behind your actions and who you become as a result. So if I want to help a little old lady across the street, not because, oh, it'll pay off in my next reincarnation or when I get to heaven, but because, man, it really hurts to watch her standing there trying to cross the street. If you do it out of compassion, caring, love, it's a very positive thing. If you do it out of selfish motivations, it reinforces your notion of self. Uh, It reinforces the desire, the grasping that is behind that action. You're reinforcing all of the wrong so, things, so and you're making very bad karma. You can help little old ladies across the street all day for the wrong reasons, and you made a huge bunch of bad karma for yourself. It's bad karma in the sense that you have moved yourself. You know, you've got enlightenment at this end, and and depravity at that end. You've moved yourself that way. <laughs> yes. Well, can you talk a little bit more about you know ethical living and, and the other aspects of, yeah, I, of ethics as, as far as your view, I guess, or the okay, well, big view? We, we need to take a break. Bladders are full, you know, hips are hurting, knees are sore. Um, and we do have a few more insight knowledges to discuss. That That's kind of the diversion, and we'll see if we can't get into it. I mean, really what you're asking, Livingston, is what is Buddhist ethics? What is what is the karma that the Buddha taught? You know, and, and I'd love to talk <coughs> about that. But let's take a break first. <laughs>